As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Totally football show. Today... Ice Cold Palmer in red hot Stamford Bridge. We review the Chelsea Man City 4-4 draw, the skills, the class, the goal going in off Erling's slide that made up one of the games of the year. Plus, Everton's upturn, Saudi Arabia, Howdy Sarabia, and other delights of a super high-scoring set of games everywhere but Old Trafford. It's the Totally Football Show. Sunday, 12th of November, and Daniel Story is joining us. Hello, Daniel. Hi, James. With Matt Davis-Adams. Hello, James. Hello, Matt Davis-Adams and James Moore. Hi, James. Hello. We're all parting like it's 2020. <laughs> We're remote listener. Can you hear? No, you talk. Somebody get a house party <laughs> open, quickly. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're having to do this one remotely, but hopefully it's all going to cohese nicely coalesce nicely one of those words anyway under the custody of uh, guest producer ben similar old school vibes nice one uh matt from the straight out of cobham podcast uh, james who's uh, to be heard as well on the view from the lane podcast and daniel story who'll be unveiling a fresh set of uh, the score on monday as well daniel mm. yes indeed yeah all right most exciting uh, weekend, though, belongs to Matt Davis-Adams, who was... Uh, what were you doing on Saturday, Matt? Uh, I did a firewalk, James. Did you? Yeah, you know I don't like to talk about my charity work, but if you're going to push me. Um, yes, I did a firewalk, which was very good fun um, to raise money for a hospice, which is near me, which my mum volunteers at, um, which costs half a million pounds a year to run, and our beloved government generously chip in 4% of that, so... They have a bit of trouble uh, making up the numbers, so it's just a bit of a fundraiser for that. And yeah, all right. I thought that was going to be the hot stuff this weekend, and then I went yeah. to Stamford Bridge. Uh, it, well, yeah, it was another kind of red hot coal, of course, that we saw <laughs> on oh. Sunday. Dove Cottage is the is the hospice in question. I saw the video that you posted on your socials, and if you want the details, go to at Matt Davis Adams. But how how do you prepare? How many practice runs did you do for that? No practice runs, just a motivational what? speech that lasted quite a long time. 
um from the guy in charge and yeah don't look down is the key be purposeful with your stride but don't run but don't look down because then your brain will go that's really hot it was between nine and um no <laughs> no between 900 and 1200 degrees if you want to get a sense of how it feels if you clap your hands together really hard yes the tingling sensation that you get in your hands that's kind yes. of how it feels to walk on hot coals but you have to step presumably quite quickly was that yes. the motivational speech step quickly yeah I assumed that you'd kind of try it out on medium ones and then slightly warmer ones, et cetera. But they really just say, it's all in your mind. Go and walk on hot coals. That's it. Yeah, it's all in the mind. You've just got to get through it. It doesn't take very long. There's somebody at the end dousing your feet. If, like me, you get a lump of coal wedged between your toes, which Ooh. is quite painful. <laughs> Matt, I salute you. That's extraordinary. Extraordinary. Mm. Anyway, Dove Cottage, all the details on Matt's social media. Let's talk about who had hot feet in the Premier League this weekend with the scores. First of all, Sunday afternoon, a 3-2 humdinger between West Ham and Forest at 2 o'clock. Also in that time slot, there were wins for Villa against Fulham, 3-1. Liverpool at home to Brentford, 3-0. While Brighton were held to a 1-1 draw at home by the battling Blades, who are now off the bottom of the table. And then at the bridge came the extraordinary Chelsea 4, Man City 4. Saturday saw a rough week for Spurs continue as they travelled to Wolves, took the lead and then shipped two goals in time added on again to lose 2-1. Elsewhere, Everton's recent good form continued. They visited Crystal Palace and won 3-2. Arsenal beat Burnley 3-1. Man United managed a 1-0 win over Luton. And in the evening game, Bournemouth got their second win in three matches against former manager Eddie Howe and his Newcastle. Bournemouth up to 17th, the bottom three, now three adrift. We begin at Sanford Bridge. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Sunday evening on the Fulham Road, after 92 minutes of blood and thunder, with the Premier League champions and European champions, 4-3 up, Chelsea get a penalty. And the man who joined them this summer from City steps up to take it. City are delaying, debating, trying to derail his kick. But Cole Palmer, his aim is true. Cole Palmer. City's boy is Chelsea's man! Matt, you were commentating on this. What did you say? Um, It was something which I might regret, actually, like Palmer's penalty perfection, I think, just trying to reference the fact that he'd uh, taken a really good one against Spurs, which Vicario got very, very close to saving on Monday. Uh, He'd also scored a penalty against Arsenal. So, I mean, my goodness me, for a 21-year-old playing against his former club, I think that's pretty impressive that he managed to hold his nerve after the long delays and all that kind of stuff as well. Yeah, he's... um, He's got some chops, the boy. He's pretty good at football, um, but he's got a fairly strong mentality as well. Plenty of mentality in this game from both sides. 4-4. It's the first time Pep Guardiola has ever had in his 882 matches as a manager a 4-4 result. These two teams met four times last season and City won every single one of those encounters without conceding a goal. How come it was this kind of crazy game this time? There hasn't actually been a draw in the previous 16 meetings between them either. So it really is a kind of freak result. But I think it was just a perfect storm of two teams who didn't leave 
tactics at the front door so much, but who just decided they were going to go for it. There was there were various points in the game where either manager would have been justified in saying, OK, that'll do. We'll shut up shop now. And it just didn't seem to be a consideration. You know, it's really hard to deal with Manchester City when you've got Akanji playing in midfield and Bernardo Silva playing everywhere and Phil Foden, whose first touch is always immaculate. Um, Chelsea just had to kind of slug it out and go toe to toe with them. And they just kept on going. And, and I think they were worth a point in the end. And I think it's kind of hard now, 20 minutes after full time, still full of adrenaline. But it's got to be up there with the best Premier League games ever, I would say. I struggle to think of many better. We've seen quite a few high scoring games between two of the big hitters in the Premier League over the last like decade. So it's kind of become a bit of a hallmark of the league. But usually those games are kind of peppered with kind of comedy moments, awful defending clownish goals, own goals, whatever. But this game, I would say the standard was generally incredibly high. There weren't really... It, it wasn't a high-scoring game because the defences were bad. It was a high-scoring game because both teams were constantly trying to attack and attacked real quality and real purpose. Although it did have one goal scored off someone's ass, which is... <laughs> that, is that is true, but it was intentional, so that's fine. Yeah, fair. <laughs> Daniel, what did you think? Yeah, I, th- I completely agree. The only exception I'd say, and it, it's not just applying to this game, it's applying to pretty much every game this weekend I've watched, is that I don't know if it's that the standard of set-piece taking has been really high this season or if the, the movement in the box has been really good or that marking systems are not quite, I don't know, adept enough or maybe people are not holding as much in the box because they're scared of penalties. But the number of players who seem to be free from set-pieces or kind of the second phase of set pieces this weekend. We had it at Arsenal twice and they hit the bar. We had it, I think, three times in this game. We had it in the earlier game between West Ham and Forest. Just loads of players being really free from uh, in the box. And they were brilliant headers. I, I, I hope and I think it was good movement. And Akanji's, you look at Akanji's run and then the way he steers that header and it's, it's absolutely brilliant. It's unstoppable. Yeah, I agree. It was a it was a really absorbing game. James and I were talking before the get the, the show and I, I'm, I'm not going to steal his point. I want him to say it. But um, yeah, it felt like a surprise good game to me. Right. This is the point, James. I, I had written in my notes after West Ham 3, Nottingham Forest 2, that that game was uh, the cartoon you used to watch before you watched a film at the cinema. Mm. So it was like, you know, Elmer Fudd before the Pelican Brief or whatever. You know, some grown up thing. But actually, in reality... The second game was just a continuation of the nonsense from the first game. Looney Tunes stuff. Although, as you say, by, by no means uh, implying that there was a lack of quality because there was quality all over. Thiago Silva, uh, from a set piece, with that equaliser after Erling Haaland had, had uh, opened the scoring with that that penalty. At that point, uh, Matt, I mean, casting your mind back to the early moments, when you saw the kind of cucurella Erling Haaland mismatch, did you fear for Chelsea? Yeah, it wasn't so much about the mismatch of Kukurea and, and Haaland, but more Kukurea, who, who is either generally excellent, like he was against Bukayo Saka for most of the game the other week, or he does something really silly. And, and that's what he did in the game here, unfortunately, for the penalty, because Haaland wasn't looking like he was going to score. So it was a needless decision to give away. Um, we knew that Anthony Taylor was going to be sort of central to things because of his relationship with Chelsea and because extra spotlight was on him because he'd been busted down to the championship last weekend and then he gets the highest profile game in the Premier League uh, this weekend, which seemed a little odd, but he made a really good decision 
backed up by VAR and obviously Haaland dispatches the penalty and, and you fear, you worry then because Kukurea gets booked that he's going to lose his head and get sent off. It's all going to fall apart and City are going to romp to to an easy victory. But but credit to Chelsea, getting, getting back level uh, quickly was key, I think. And then the goals just kept on coming. And, and I've got to say this now before I forget, some people around me in the East stand left at 4-3. They must not have been watching how the rest of the game had gone. And I hope they handed in their season cards on the way out because that is just unforgivable. That's extraordinary. I mean, it's, it's its own punishment in many ways. As you say, Chelsea were in no way daunted by Man City taking the lead against them. We're, this Chelsea that seems to come out when they play an Arsenal, a Liverpool, but particularly today, where's that been? And what, why doesn't it show up more often, Daniel? I think they clearly struggle against deeper line defences. That's been a, a pattern of, of Mauricio Pochettino's career, I think. It enabled him at, at Spurs because he didn't face it as often. He certainly faced it at, at PSG and it didn't work out well there. And at Chelsea, the same. I think that it, you'd almost say that they've been more merited victory against Arsenal and Man City than you would against Nottingham Forest and whoever else they've lost to at home, I can't remember, but pretty much everyone. Yeah, that, that has been a problem, for example, because Raheem Sterling can't get in behind because they can't get any of those umpteen wide forwards they have in behind. Sterling, I thought, was probably the best player on the pitch today. He, he looked like he had a point to prove. And when he has that space in behind, he's he's everything he was at City. He's getting into the box. He's getting five, six yards out from goal. He's dipping in behind on the wing and playing crosses a, a, across the box. And... Yeah, Chelsea are a better team when you give them some space. But um, I'm and I am surprised that City were as open, given that they had leads. Uh, if City had been behind in the game, I would have accepted it. But the way that City played with a lead kind of surprised me, given the players they were missing, given that Stones wasn't there and etc. But maybe we should credit Chelsea for kind of making them play that way. Yeah, what was one of the big differences about Chelsea's performance today? The fact that they actually converted their chances. Yeah, quite possibly. And and I think that we should give some credit to, to Nicholas Jackson here because he got absolutely pilloried for scoring a hat-trick away at, Ch- at Chelsea's biggest rivals on Monday night for, for reasons. Uh, but his goal here was really good, reactive finish. It would have been um, easy to make a meal of. You know, maybe Palmer was in a better place to take the shot, but he was there to, to tuck it away. And for, for all the times we've talked about Chelsea's lack of a proper striker, here he is with, what, now seven? Premier League goals this season. And yeah, before that, the irony of seeing Raheem Sterling score the goal that we saw him score 100 times for Manchester City. So yeah, they were being clinical with their chances, which is something which has let them down this season. But they definitely, as Daniel says, they definitely play better against the bigger teams um, because they're a better counter-attacking side than they are when they play with a a team that just sits with a defensive line on the edge of the penalty area and says, come and break us down. James, eight goals at the bridge. What was your favourite moment? Uh, I mean, we mentioned one going in up Harlan's backside. That's that's always good to see. I, I mean, Palmer's penalty was incredibly, incredibly cool. I mean, that, that that obviously the narrative there is so obvious. But with all of the kind of nonsense around that, all of the delaying, you know, the VAR checks and whatever else, it's, re- it's really good to see a young player. You know, there are so many questions about whether this was a good move for him. So many players are moving to Chelsea. City clearly is a pretty good club for that kind of playmaker albeit, you know, it's not going to be easy to get into the team. And yeah, to see him continue, not just with the penalty, but with his overall performance, continue that run of performing well in big games against the big sides, you know, you know, like following on from Spurs last week. 
it's really impressive. And I have to say, I didn't expect him to make quite as big an impact as he has done quite this quickly. Yeah, he's it's it's 10 players plus Palmer when Pochettino's picking his team at the moment. It wasn't fair for Haaland to score with his arse, was it? How many times have we said, oh, so, so-and-so just needs one to go in off his backside? He doesn't. <laughs> just greedy. Erling Haaland with that has now scored multiple goals in a single Premier League game on 12 occasions, which is a, a whole quarter of all the matches he's ever played in the league. Is he on 49 Premier League goals, I think, now? And the, the fastest player to get to 50 previously was Andy Cole, and he's going to absolutely shatter that record. It is, you know, to watch him play live, you don't realise just how sort of telescopic his legs are, how he manages to get to balls that he's got absolutely no right to do. OK, so he's on 49 goals in 47 Premier League goals now. Andy Cole was the, the fastest to 50, and it took him 65 games. So he's just tearing up these records in a, in a way that's sort of almost unbelievable. You talk mm. about his movement there. There was a moment, I think it was Bernardo Silva played the ball through in the first half, and he completely changed the direction of his run to, to bamboozle both of the Chelsea centre-backs and get through on goal. And he, he didn't score in that instance, actually, probably because the ball didn't hit his ass. Uh, but it, that that kind of thing, that kind of change of direction is the thing that people don't really talk about that much. You talk about his physicality and how good he is in the penalty area, but his movement is so good. There were signature moments from lots of players in this year. Manuel Kanji getting his uh, third straight goal in a game, or a goal in a third straight appearance. He also had Rodri coming up with what looked like yet another of his match-winning strikes before that late, late 92nd-minute penalty. We, we go into an international break now, and the situation's so tight at the top. What do What did Chelsea take from this over the international break, Matt? It's been a transformative week for them. There's, there's no doubt about that. There are obviously huge caveats to the Spurs win and the way that that came about, but there aren't any caveats really to the performance that they're putting on Sunday and, and the result that they've got. They've got a difficult run of games now. They're playing teams who all finished in the top six last season, I think. So it's Newcastle away after the break, and then they've got Brighton and um, Man United away coming up too. But there's just a recognisable style of play and there are now results for Pochettino to hang his hat on as well. It feels like he's endeared himself to Chelsea supporters more in the last week um, than he was able to in the early parts of the season. And yeah, we've had a lot of false dawns over the last kind of 18 months, but it feels like they're in a much better position now. The injuries are starting to clear up a bit. And they've got Cole Palmer pulling the strings and, and Nicholas Jackson scoring goals and Raheem Sterling looking like the Raheem Sterling that they thought they were getting when they bought him. Have they turned the corner? Wow. I've thought this quite a few times and it's ended up just being a cul-de-sac. So I'll maybe hang fire on that right. for a little while or longer. But they, um, yeah, turn the corner. What are you expecting from them this season? It's going to be difficult to finish in the top six because they're still quite a way behind that and there are other teams who are playing really well. But it's not going to be the absolute dross and misery that was last season. Uh, what about Man City? What do they, what does Pep take into this international break, Daniel? It, 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 it seems, as I kind of alluded to earlier, the way they played the game, it does, for some reason this season, it, it feels as if every team, I think partly because of all the VAR kind of circus, partly because there's so many injuries going around, it feels like every team is being kind of drawn like a moth to the flame with, with, this just, with just chaos, whether in the space of one game or over a period of time. And Spurs were the exception to that, and then suddenly they had this kind of mad meltdown 90 minutes uh, Manchester City have had it as well with the Wolves game and to an extent with this one. There's no way that Man City should seed so many leads. It, ju- it just doesn't happen. Guardiola likes to... His whole thing this season has been about get a lead and then s- strangle the, get the game and strangle your, the opponent with your own control and they're unable to do it. 
it makes for a fascinating title race because I didn't think there was a chance that Liverpool win the league this season. But this is potentially one of the weirdest title races we've seen in years and years and years. And I think it's probably only a month since we were all sort of saying, well, City will win it by 10 points or 12. And that's the only question. And now at least there is faith for everyone else. Mm. You know what the next fixture is for Man City when they return? It's Liverpool on Saturday lunchtime, much to uh, Jurgen Klopp's chagrin. Indeed. Uh, next up, we'll be talking about more chaos-ridden encounters uh, as we discuss Sunday, the early kickoff at the London Stadium. Do you like Formula One but struggle to keep up with everything that's going on? Then we have the podcast for you. Introducing the Race F1 Briefing, the podcast that brings you the latest F1 headlines in 15 minutes or less. With new episodes dropping on all four days of every race event, you'll never miss out on hearing what went down in practice, qualifying or the Grand Prix itself. And we'll also bring you all the behind the scenes news and gossip from the F1 paddock as well. If that sounds like the F1 podcast for you, search The Race F1 Briefing in your podcast app of choice. We'd love to have you join us. Before you get back to this Athletic podcast, did you know it's just one of many made by The Athletic every week? I'm Abby Patterson, senior producer here at The Athletic, and I get to work across so many of our shows. But even I have my favourites. Sometimes you're just too busy for a full-length podcast. I get it. We've all been there. Well, we've got a show to help you. Get up to speed with all the football stories you need to know about with our daily football briefing. It's done and dusted. Saudi Arabia will host the 2034 World Cup. Got a bug for the women's game? Then full-time Europe is for you. It's our dedicated women's football podcast answering the questions you're asking from the WSL and Champions League. So what's going wrong at Arsenal? But perhaps you want to know exactly how a team has set itself up. Then come to the audio whiteboard and join Michael Cox and our analytics gurus as they dissect and examine the game like nobody else can. That's on the Athletic Football Tactics podcast. I don't think I've ever seen a striker who reads the game so well. Just search The Athletic wherever you're listening to this podcast now and you'll find your next podcast obsession in no time at all. Now, let's get back to your show. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Last Thursday saw a clean sweep from Premier League sides in Europe with West Ham, Brighton, Aston Villa and Liverpool all winning and all looking good now to qualify Sunday afternoon. Those sides were in action. Went well for some, less well for others, Brighton. But West Ham after their recent wobble in the Premier League, were 3-2 winners against Nottingham Forest. Matt and Daniel, I imagine you were both watching this unexpected thriller. It wasn't that unexpected because Forest have, unlike last season, started trying to score goals away from home and been semi-successful doing it. However, like last season, they are the Premier League's masters uh, losing games when leading them. This is the seventh time since the start of last season that Forest have led in a game and managed to not just drop points, but actually lose the game, which is... Mighty impressive. And they were they were basically unable to deal with James Ward-Prowse's set pieces and gave away so many of those set pieces in terms of corners and free kicks out wide that they eventually paid the price. The last goal is a sickener because it's Thomas Suchek wins a header at the back post, which, I mean, the ball probably passed 13 or 14 players before it got to Suchek. There's no one on the line. The header goes in. 
But ever since, I mean, since Forrest took the lead, which is about 70 odd minutes, um, yeah, it felt like that there was a tide and they sat back. They've got a problem, Forrest, which is that Taiwo Arani is brilliant at holding the ball up. He's not, not not played 90 minutes for Forest yet since joining last last summer, summer 2022. And only three times he's played more than 80 minutes. So he he works hard and then needs to come off. But as soon as he comes off, Forest just have nothing up top to hold the ball up. And I apologise, Chris Wood, but I'm including him in that. They don't hold up the ball. And what happens is opponents realise that and just completely stymie them and mean that Forest can't reduce the pressure. So they launch the ball out and give it back or they launch out and give away set pieces. And that was enough for West Ham, really. It was a kind of felt inevitable from the moment that Forrest fell towards their own goal and conceded the second. Mm. You make it sound as though Forrest beat themselves, but West Ham must have had quite a big part in this as well. Yeah, and I mean, as Dan mentioned earlier on, I mean, it really was a game that showed the value of set-piece delivery. For, you know, for all it was end-to-end for the most part, particularly in the second half, two, two corner deliveries from James Wood-Prowse in the last 20 minutes of the game were ultimately Forrest's undoing. And Forrest don't have a brilliant record when it comes to defending set pieces, which is obviously quite an ominous thing if you're going to go to the London Stadium and play West Ham with James Ward-Prowse and all of, you know, the massive guys they've got in that West Ham team, Suchek and Zuma and whoever else. It was probably not quite in keeping with the with the nature of the game, but it probably was to be expected. OK. West Ham, it was who took the lead through Lucas Paquetar. After three minutes, that's his 10th goal of this calendar year. It's also one of the fastest goals scored this season. Uh, it was two minutes and 38 seconds in. Weirdly, we got three of the season's top 10 fastest goals all in the course of this weekend because there was also uh, Everton's uh, Mikolenko. That was after 53 seconds. It was a crazy game as well. And the other one was Brennan Johnson after two minutes and 15 seconds. Does that mean anything? This could be a complete projection, but it feels like quite a lot of those goals, early goals this season, and I know Forrest at Old Trafford is in there as well, are by away teams where the home team just kind of starts quite slow and, oh, we'll just pass it around the back for a bit. And away team thinks, right, we're going to score goals. It's something Sean Dice talked about a few weeks ago and Everton have been, they've scored more early goals than anyone else in the Premier League. He talked about Mikolenko's. He did, Mikolenko did the same thing last week. I think he scored after like six minutes. And they seem to be starting games quicker than the home team thinks they're going to. Um, Everton are a great example because Dyche normally does have that kind of acclimatisation period of we'll keep it tight for the first 15, 20 minutes and then push on. But maybe it's just a result of this new chaos season where teams go for it from the start and nobody's ready. But yeah, it's definitely a theme. Hmm. Okay, should we talk about Everton who also had a a 3-2 victory? Uh, like their former boss, David Moyes, this weekend. Uh, curiously, it came at Crystal Palace. We were flagging up on Thursday the fact that that is statistically the dullest ground to watch football in uh, this season, but it certainly wasn't on Saturday afternoon. This is New Everton, though, right? Sean Dyche's party boys. You just go out to entertain and, yeah, we'll, we'll take good. it from there. Win it on pure vibes. Why not? Well, nothing it. like an imminent points deduction, I guess, to light a fire on you. <laughs> excuse Matt, the analogy. but um, No, no they, I mean... On, on that party, on Everton's party, they've scored under Dyche in the last eight away games. They've scored three goals or more three times. They hadn't done that for about two and a half years before Dyche got there. I think it was 44 away games, which is, yeah, getting on for two and a half seasons. They hadn't scored three goals in an away game. And yeah, now, they, now they've done it in, yeah, three of the last eight. They scored five at Brighton. They scored three at Brentford and they scored three at Palace now. 
on the way to taking 10 points from the last 15 available. Their corner has been turned, Matt, I think it's safe to say. Yeah, and, and you know, Sean Dyche deserves credit for that because they were so rank in the first three games of this season. They lost the ball without scoring that you're thinking this is going to be another Everton battling for 17th place all season. And yeah, with the points deduction, I guess um, it might be. But but they look good. You know, they've got a great chance of getting into the, the semi-finals of the League Cup. They've got Fulham at home in the quarters. Uh, they seem to be scoring goals from all over the pitch. I think the assumption was, well, it's all about Calvert-Lewin coming back and staying fit. He didn't score here. Uh, yeah, an away win. It might have been different if Eberichese, who was absolutely brilliant, had, had got a second penalty rather than a booking for diving with that one with, with Branthwaite. But yeah, you, you know, I guess you, you make your own luck, don't you? But it's um, these are heady days for for the club who I've labelled the most difficult and unpleasant to support in football. So they ought to just ride the wave while they can. That defeat to Luton did kind of look incredibly ominous, but actually it, it kind of feels like since then they've pushed on really well. And yeah, I think they only lost one league game since then, and that was against Liverpool when they were down to 10 men after like half an hour. And they're, they're away from, I think only Spurs and City have taken more points away from home. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's an unlikely... Uh, an unlikely source of joy, I'd say, for Everton fans to score three goals away from home, like like Dan was saying, they uh ever knew away kings. Magnificent. They've climbed all the way up to Czech's notes, 14th spot. They're now one point, one place behind Palace there. Uh, also on Saturday, and a pretty eye-catching result, was the Bournemouth-Newcastle game, which finished 2-0 to the suddenly swarming attack-happy Cherries. Ten shots on target. And, and Nick Pope, uh, Eddie Howe, had to thank for not going home with a much uh, bigger spanking. Yeah, um, the, and Newcastle are, are suffering from the European hangover. There's no doubt about that. They played four games immediately after Champions League games, and they three of them are, are this game, the draw at Wolves and draw at West Ham, both of which they're pretty lucky to get a point in. They do look tired. They've got a huge injury crisis. Every, it feels like every club has had at least one injury crisis already this season, but Newcastle's is more severe than most. They're playing more games. The squad is not as big as some of the clubs around them. Um, and yeah, the interesting thing was was after full time when Kieran Trippier had a bit of a Barney with a, an away supporter. And I don't know if it's because Newcastle have changed their ticketing system in a way that makes it easier for new fans or, or new followers of the team to get tickets. But I've heard a couple of instances in which supporters feel the atmosphere has changed a little bit in the away support. They have only won once of this, one of their six away games. So I get it's frustrating, but it's difficult to imagine six months on from last season that you'd have Newcastle fans kind of shouting at the players saying that's not good enough when yeah, they're playing in the Champions League, and that—that yeah. that is still a team that is is not Champions League level. They're they're just there, and the danger is that they get the worst of both worlds in that they tumble out of the Champions League group, which is a danger now ahead of you know the PSG away game, mm. and and also slump in the Premier League because of the injuries that have set in. Well, we shall see. They can always try and reinforce in January, but that uh, PSG win, that four-one back at St James's Park, beginning to feel a. A long time ago, eh? Just before we leave this game, let me say, Dominic Solanke scoring two in a Premier League game for the first time since the pandemic ball games and already equaling his total of, of goals in the Premier League for last season. I remember him getting 41 for the Chelsea youth team um, back in the day. And he's always been a really kind of dead-eyed finisher who maybe 
hasn't had the players around him to create the chances that would mean he would have scored a lot more goals for for a different team than the one he's playing in now. But at 26, coming into his peak, uh, he's one of those. He's, he's played for England, hasn't he, already? He's a, he's a one-cap wonder at the moment. He's, he's not really knocking on the door at the moment. But, you know, Callum Wilson not available in this game, pulling out. Maybe possible for him to make a late run at it. Maybe that's a bit of a stretch, but to see him become a regular Premier League goal scorer would be a, a good thing, I think, because he's a, a talented player who, who maybe not for reasons entirely of his own doing it has not wrung the most out of his career to this point. Good news for him and his manager ahead of the always worrying international break, with all the dangers that it poses for an under fire manager. Bournemouth getting the results in. If he's looking safe, though, what James of Vincent Company at Burnley after yet another defeat for them? They're 10th in their opening 12 matches. Yeah, I mean, it's tempting to say don't judge Burnley on their results against teams like Arsenal, which is sort of fair enough. But you do need to judge them on the basis of their results. And obviously, they've not been great. Which ones can we judge I, them on? <laughs> I mean, all the games they've lost against lesser teams. I mean, I know they had a pretty horrible start to the season I think pretty much all of their home games were against like top six sides. But yeah, more recently, you know, losing at Bournemouth, for, for example, say, uh, and losing at home to Crystal Palace. I mean, I think if you do both of those two things, you would probably worry as a manager. I mean, looking at the next few games coming up, West Ham at home, Sheffield United at home, Wolves away. You put, you know, you're getting into December there and then you're almost thinking if you are going to pull the trigger, it may almost be too late. I mean, I know they're very wedded to this style and they probably sort of had it in mind that it may see them get relegated and have to come back next time around, which is sort of fine, but or in theory at least. But I think in practice, you can't you can't go be, you know, be one third of the way into the season and be on what four points and then say, well, maybe next time. You know, the company is a young manager and is obviously really well respected in the game and it did an incredible job there last season, even though possibly it wasn't the most competitive championship season ever. What I wouldn't like to see is Burnley change manager and completely change tack and try and like go to a more sort of agricultural style of football and then still go down, mm. which I think would probably be what would happen anyway. Mm. So I mean, they're in a difficult position. I, I don't really know what the answer is. And I don't imagine he's going to be getting sacked imminently, but that does sound like the kind of thing you say in a podcast and then... By <laughs> midday on Monday, you look like an idiot. Well, so hopefully we'll not. I mean, it's lovely that no one's actually been shown the door so far this season. Long may that continue. Uh, Arsenal, anyway, with a 3 1 win in this game. Uh, Trossard Saka show again. Trossard now on seven goals for the season. He's playing up the middle now and it's looking so effective. And Saka has assisted all seven of his goals, which is lovely. Yeah. Uh, any other thoughts from Arsenal Burnley before we move on? I know Eddie Nketiah was not fully fit and kind of only make the bench. I wonder if Trossard has moved ahead of him as that kind of, well, we say backup striker. I mean, Gabriel Jesus has played about 400 minutes in the league this season. So it's first choice striker right now. And just deals with that movement of Trossard out left and kind of swapping places with Martinelli. It, it makes Arsenal more, I think Arsenal can be really effective with Nketiah if they get him the ball. If they don't get him the ball, then they look really blunt. And with Trossard there, there just seems to be a bit more fluidity that I think Arteta would like. And it, and it also allows, hopefully eventually, for Kai Havertz to kind of push through the middle and kind of make those overlapping runs, which just hasn't happened this season so far. Mm. All right. Sounds good. Next up, uh, oh, we'll talk Spurs and Wolves 2, Tottenham 1. 
We're all driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging, so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. According to their own survey, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites. Remember the last time you were hiring and how slow and overwhelming it was? Well, you don't need to go through all that again. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent. And because you listen to The Totally Football Show, Indeed is going to give you a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash totally. That's I-N-D-E-E-D dot com slash totally. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed at Indeed.com. You're listening to The Totally Football Show with James Richardson, the Sports Podcast Awards Soccer Podcast of the Year. Full-Time Europe, a.k.a. the Athletic Women's Football Podcast, is out on Tuesday. Talking about WSL and also the grand finale of uh, Megan Rapinoe's playing career. Uh, on Tuesday, oh, also on Tuesday, is the Totally Football Show European Edition, uh, in which we'll be discussing the Rome Derby. And the stuff that went on around that. More goals from Harry Kane. More goals from Harry Kane. James Moore. Good Lord. He, he got two this weekend as Bayern took on Heidenheim. He's now up to seven in his last three or 17 for the campaign. You'll have noted that top scorer last season only got 16. So he's already ahead of that. Yeah, I do wonder. I, I don't know what Gerd Müller's record is for the Bundesliga. I'm assuming it's... 41. It's, uh, sorry, I meant all time. Sorry. Oh, sorry. I see. Right, yeah. I mean, I mean, I think it must be like kind of 200, 300. He's obviously not going to get there, but I bet he's looked it up. I'm Well, Harry seems to have a fairly passive attitude. It's always kind of, oh, yeah, somebody mentioned this to me, that, etc. I don't know how obsessed he is with numbers. Maybe he secretly is. Have you had much dealings with Harry Kane in your Tottenham duties? Uh, I have, yeah. I've met him a couple of a couple of times. I've interviewed him in a, in a previous life, in my previous job at 442 Magazine. So, yeah, he's a nice guy. And he is hmm. obsessed. He is obsessed with those numbers. I is think that's he? the one thing he is obsessed with. Okay. Uh, do you are you are you and Spurs fans of your of your of your uh, acquaintance? Are you all kind of rooting for him in his new Bayern incarnation? Uh, the general consensus seems to be very happy for him to score a lot of goals, but it would be very funny if he did that and still didn't win anything. He's trying his best, isn't he? Because they're out of the Pokal. Um, they didn't win the Super Cup, and Leverkusen. Leverkusen, yeah, they won today again, didn't they? Marching yeah. on, yeah. Well, we'll see. Uh, they, as a club with Kane in their ranks, have scored a record goals total by him at this stage of a Bundesliga season. Uh, Forty-two in eleven games. Good lord! Uh, no doubt, Rafa will be uh, telling us all about that, and we'll be hearing from Jules and James and Alvaro. Anyway, all that's on Tuesday, and uh, let's talk about the. Uh, the Harry Kane former club who were looking better off without him, a.k.a. Spurs, who this weekend lost their second straight game. The second straight occasion, they conceded two goals after the 90 as well. First of all, woof, Pablo Sarabia. Yeah. Who's, yeah, who's been absolutely dr- dross since moving to Wolves. Has he? But... I, I, I'd completely forgotten that he'd gone there. I mean, it's an, ama- an amazing goal. I mean, the kind of goal that you see so rarely. That t- it's like, it, was, it was like a World Cup goal. 
the kind of goal you'd only really expect to see someone like score for Mexico against South Korea or something. It was absolutely brilliant. But I had completely, was it his second Premier League goal, I think, in, what, 18 months? Why did you get those kind of goals at World Cups? I don't, it's, it's the aesthetic, isn't it? It's the, it's like someone taking a ball with that touch. It's just not a thing you see in the Premier League. Yeah. It's, it's, you know, you know, I'm whacking it really see. hard as well. Yeah. Like, like I mean, Chris, yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. In, and kind of hit through the ball into the near post. Second of three group games in a day. So midway <laughs> through the second half, you're just falling asleep. And then, oh my goodness me, there's Paolo Sarabia. So he takes it midair and I think strikes it with his other foot before the ball hits the ground. Yeah. Just he remarkable. Hit, hits through it into the near post and beats Vicario at his near post. It's a brilliant goal. Fantastic goal. He'd only just come on the field as well. Slash George Campos. Isn't yeah. <laughs> he came in the 87th minute, scored that, made another one yeah, in, a, on second. in a in a 2-1 victory. Wolves, who I think many of us thought might lose a little bit of, of their attacking threat without Neto, had uh, 11 more shots than Spurs. I think you can make an argument that Wolves have been the best of the rest outside the kind of big six extended universe, if you want to call it that. Uh, you know, I think they've had a pretty bad start to the season in terms of the fixtures and also some of the decisions that have gone against them. You know, the, a nonsense penalty at Sheffield United the other week, a nonsense penalty at Luton a few weeks before that. The one they didn't get at Manchester United right at the end on the first weekend of the season. Mm. I mean, I know it doesn't really work like that, but if you chuck those extra four or five points on, I think they'd be eighth. Um, which is incredible, really, given, as you mentioned, you know, they, they lost key players over the summer. Uh, and the expectation was that they'd probably be one of the teams with a newly promoted size that'd be right down the bottom. They've looked really good. And, you know, that's now draws against Villa and Newcastle and wins over Spurs and Manchester City. And Manchester it's incredibly City. impressive. Yeah, and, and with all with a manager who's only just passed 50 Premier League games, none of the supporters wanted to get the job. It's, yeah, it's, it's pretty impressive. They've also they're, they're, they're really good at they, they, they fight late in games, they've got so many points late in games. They've they you know, I know they kind of did it here against Spurs in spectacular style, but even before that, you know, they they, they won at Everton in the 87th minute. Um, they came from a goal and a man down against Luton. There's like for a new manager, O'Neill seems to have kind of inspired them to be kind of his disciples, not just to be a good team to watch, although they are a good team to watch, particularly when Neto plays. The performance of the strikers is extraordinary, given the kind of running, guffawing jokes of last season and the season before. He's not put a foot wrong, basically. And yet, I suspect there are still Wolves supporters, because they can't quite believe it, that wonder when this run ends. And I suspect in it to an extent... Gary O'Neill feels the same because there's a reason he, why he went on Monday Night Football and that's because he's having a really good time at the moment and the best time to talk about yourself is when you're having a really good time. Um, and fair play to him because I didn't see this coming. I had them 17th, I think. I uh, just didn't see how they could kick on without any goals and they're one of the top scoring home teams in the country now. <laughs> Remarkable. What, what about Spurs? What will you be saying on your view from the lane, uh, James, this week <laughs> after last Monday where... They were the winners in a funny kind of way. Did they also kind of win this in a funny kind of way? Yeah, probably not. I mean, Matt mentioned this was a, was a transformative week for Chelsea. And I suppose you'd have to say similarly for Spurs, but in completely the opposite way. Um, I mean, in a way, actually, this was probably a game where the risk element of the risk and reward of Angel really came home to roost more than last Monday. Uh 
you know, as we mentioned, Sariba scores that amazing goal in the 90th minute, I think like 10 seconds into added time. And I just had a sense when that happened that Spurs would lose the game trying to win it. And that is exactly what happened. Uh, and it was more an issue with the inverted fullbacks than the high line. I know the high line was kind of the hot topic last week. Um, but to be honest, Dyer and Davis, both starting Premier League games, I think for the first time this season, coped relatively well. But right at the end of the game, those two fullbacks coming inside, so Pedro Porro and Emerson Royale, squeeze right into midfield and Spurs have the ball in midfield. It's incredibly congested. They give the ball away twice in the space of probably about 30 seconds. And then the ball's played out wide. And because Emerson Royale is in midfield, he's not at left back. And again, Sariba again pops up down Wolves' right flank and squares it for Lamina to score. And you do think maybe that was a moment where possibly being slightly more regimented in their defence, maybe would have seen them come away with a point that I think would have put them level with all those others on 27. Well, that's not who they are, though. That isn't who they are. Mate, (laughs) yes. It it feels like this is ripe for somebody to come up with a a YouTube video, you know, Anja's presser giving all the injuries out, intercut with Doggy and Romero's tackles and the high line and just label it. Ange Postacoglu, welcome to Spurs, vertical bar, <laughs> bad decisions, injuries, calamities, vertical bar, HD, and away we go. Away we go. Uh, how much will the international break help Tottenham re- regroup? Anybody coming back? How many the suspended uh, are still suspended? Are yeah, Udogi will be back from the suspension. He only had a one-game suspension. I don't think any of the injuries are going to be, any of the injured players are going to be back by then unless... Well, Madison's Ryan out until twenty twenty four. I think they were yeah, saying. Yeah, Madison and Van der Ven are, are they like both huge misses. I mean, I, yeah, I, they're really the two players that they don't have any kind of suitable backup for. There's, you know, the, the only other centre back they've got is Dyer and now Davis filling in at centre half. And in terms of like creative midfield players, it's you know Giovanni Lacelso, who as well as he did at Villarreal, as well as he's done with Argentina, has never really done it in the Premier League. So, yeah, those are two pretty big losses, and you know their next game is Aston Villa uh, after the international break, which will uh, will basically be, you know, two high lines. I don't know whether that will work for Spurs or not, but I mean, it would be kind of be both teams lined up on the halfway line, like a kind of inverted game of like British Bulldog or something. I mean, it could be a pretty crazy game. I, I do suspect Villa will be in a slightly better condition for it. And then obviously, mm. small matter of Manchester City for Spurs after that. So it, yeah, it could get worse before it gets better. The other thing about the international break is Spurs could really do with playing quite a lot of games before January because they're going to lose Son to the Asian Cup. <laughs> they're going to lose Papi Matasar, Andy Basuma to the Africa Cup of Nations. If Madison and Van der Ven are still out by then, then the squad is is basically non-existent in terms of first team backup. So, yeah, and in midfield is going to be a, an interesting pick because, yeah, there's not a lot of dynamism left. I know Hoiberg can sit, but there's just not a lot of options other than well it's yeah, it's it doesn't really bear thinking about, it, particularly as as James says, they've suffered the kind of slump post injury news. Yeah, it's hard to regain that. Mm. All right. They've got the three time manager of the month though, at the helm though. And he's surprised us before. So we shall see. Uh, elsewhere in the Premier League this weekend you had Liverpool beating Brentford 3 0. Villa, who We'll be taking on Spurs next time out. 
beating Fulham 3-1, the 1-1 between Brighton and Sheffield United, and also the Man United 1-0 against Luton, which I'm sure we're all gagging to discuss. If we leave that aside for one second or two, where do you want to go? Brighton? Brighton and the Blades or Villa's latest exploits? They've won 13 home games in a row now, or, or Liverpool doing their usual win over Brentford? Sheffield United moving off the off the bottom of the Premier League table feels fairly significant, and that they're actually showing something akin to form now. Maybe I mean we we talked about Vincent Company and and how dangerous this international break historically has been for managers. Paul Heckenbottom's probably saved his job over the last week, hasn't he, by beating Wolves and taking a point against Sheffield United. Now he's looking at Bournemouth at home and Burnley away as his next two games, and he might be thinking. Well, actually, maybe there's half a chance that we can not only shatter the 11-point barrier, but maybe even make a fist of staying up. And yeah, Brighton, it's kind of Brighton after European games, trying to come down off the high of, of winning away at Ajax. It felt like a good fixture for him, but you still got to go and do it. Winless in six. Mm. There, there can't be many seven-week spells in Brighton's history where the only team they've beaten are four-times European <laughs> champions twice. <laughs> But yeah, those are the only two games that they've won in the last 10 since the end of September at Ajax, home and away. Talking of uh, teams who have only won twice in a long time is Fulham have only beaten, since the opening day, Fulham have only beaten Luton Town at home and Sheffield United at home, which I think we've, in my mind, I've been sort of tricked into thinking that Fulham are instantly a mid-table team now. Mm. And without Alexander Mitrovic, they aren't really. And they're, they're sort of asking Jalpolinia to do absolutely everything, which... On occasion, he's capable of doing, and more often than not, he gets a bit swamped. Um, Marco Silva signed a, a new contract last month, but it's, look, it's, I mean, they're, they're fine, he's fine, but they're slipping down the Premier League. They don't score many goals at all. Um, and yeah, and, and, and the other thing to say is that the supporters have, have basically fallen out with the club over the ridiculous ticket pricing system for home games. They protested during the Man United game last week. So everything just doesn't quite feel as rosy as it did a year ago at Fulham, I think. Mm. All right. Just three Premier League wins all season. Sheffield United, Luton and Everton. Villa, meanwhile, absolutely flying both in Europe. Another victory on Thursday and in the league. We mentioned the fact they're now on the fringes of the top four. Uh, Only a point behind the likes of Liverpool. Liverpool with that 3-0 over Brentford. Mo Salah with a brace, another player who'll be off, of course, to the Cup of Nations come the new year. But up to 200 goals now in English football with Diogo Jota adding a third for the hosts. Liverpool have won all of their nine games at Anfield this season. In all competitions, this is by a margin of at least two goals, every single one of them. Yikes. Bizarrely, though, Thursday, I know this wasn't at Anfield, but they went to Toulouse, who are, well, were at the time, one point off the relegation zone in Ligue 1 and managed to lose 3-2 to them. I mean, scenes afterwards, the whole stadium was bouncing up and down. The the 18-year-old goalkeeper was in the stands leading leading the um, sing-along. But for, what happened to Liverpool there? Were they just not that bothered or, or what? They're doing the right thing, which is they're playing reserves in that competition, knowing that they should be good enough to get through anyway, and then we'll step it up. Almost a kind of extension of the League Cup principle that we'll take it seriously when it gets serious I think and they will go through I mean if they'd have drawn that game I think they'd have guaranteed qualification so they're fine Klopp was really annoyed afterwards to be honest I think he was more annoyed that he had to bring on Salah Alexander-Arnold et al at half time um, and kind of use their energy level a bit Um, but yeah he was basically I mean he was a annoyed about the performance he was b annoyed about hearing half of Toulouse in his right earlobe 
uh, when he was trying to give a press conference. And yeah, uh, has got a response, we should say, today because Salah looked brilliant. They looked effortless against Brentford as soon as they took the, scored the first goal. So. Mm. All right, not an easy team to play against Brentford on a run of three straight victories. Very good. So Liverpool in that pack just behind Man City and a little bit further down, it is Eric Ten Hag's Man United who had that 1-0 win over Luton. United seven Premier League wins this season and their one victory in the Champions League. They've all been by a single goal. What does that tell us? It feels wild that they're... At... Well, it feels wild that they're above Newcastle in the table and Brighton as well. It just doesn't doesn't feel right, does it? I mean, they're still five points off the top four and four off the top five if we're saying that that's what gets you into the Champions League. But it's just... I know the stats are actually pretty good for Eric Ten Hag, aren't they? But it just kind of feels like he's limping along, keeping him, keeping just enough pressure off him for it to become a you know a real thing that he might lose his job with a, a series of kind of uninspiring, drab victories. I'm just looking. Their last what three wins have all been one nil. They haven't won a game by more than a goal in the Premier League all season. It's just pretty meh. All up, isn't it? Shout out for Harry Maguire, who has been, I think, has been their best player in four of the last six games, I'd say. Scored the winner against Copenhagen in the first game. Everybody was awful the other night in Copenhagen. But he'd started about seven league games in 16 months or something before a few weeks ago. And Eric Ten Hag was pretty adamant and clear that he didn't really want to pick him. It was just an injury crisis that forced it. And he's been Man United's best player in four out of the last six games he is the best way I can describe it is that Gareth Southgate picked his England squad on in midweek Harry Maguire was in it and there wasn't a thousand and one unfunny jokes on Twitter about Harry Maguire being in the England squad which is when you know he must be playing really really well you're following the wrong people Daniel (laughs) (laughs) Um, United's next three fixtures when we come back from the international break make interesting reading Uh, Everton away Galatasaray away and then Newcastle away. But you never know. I mean, there is, when you see them, sometimes it clicks and there is a really good team in there, I think, isn't there? I mean, there are moments team, aren't they? Which uh, it kind of feels like a, a team that have been put together for that amount of money with a coach with a reputation like Ten Hark. It shouldn't really be the case. I mean, it's quite striking to look at the table. Uh, and if you look at it, they've scored, I think they've scored at least 11 goals fewer than all of the rest of the top eight, which is quite a big, quite a big step. And there's, I mean, this probably ties in a bit uh, to what, what Dan was saying about Harry Maguire, but there's kind of a perception of them being shaky defensively over the last few years. But but really, it's their goals scored rather than their goals conceded that's kind of trended in the wrong direction in the last couple of seasons. I mean, I think they scored 58 and 57 in the last two seasons, which is fine, but hardly incredible. Uh, and yeah, you watch, you know, they play at home to Luton and win the game 1 0. But easy, you know, we all know that a set piece or a moment of madness could have easily cost them two points there. And I, they're just quite an underwhelming team to watch. Yeah. And, you know, without wanting to kind of fall back into the romance of watching Manchester United in the 1990s, having watched that Beckham documentary, it, it kind of feels like a Manchester United team, if nothing else, should score goals against Luton. It is emphatically damning with faint praise that you watch an £80 million substitute come on and you're like, oh, we just created quite a good chance of Marcus Rashford there. You're like, well, yeah, hopefully. I mean, that's kind of the point of the, this whole exercise. I assume that's why he was brought in for £80 million. So, mm. Yeah, I, 
yeah, I can't see it. I can't see how this works out. The players don't look that don't look particularly enthused at the moment. I think there's been issues behind the scenes there. Uh, and I don't see how that is miraculously saved with a 1-0 win at home to Luton. Or I should say four wins in five, which is what they're on now. Hmm. But I think as soon as Ball they... Team put... in the league, by the way. Yeah, but then as soon as they play... Well, they won four of the last five? Yeah. yeah. In the Premier League? Yeah. yeah. But then the exception... <laughs> yeah, but then the exception is the thwacking at home, you know, the thwacking against Man City. So I, 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 where I'm at with them is that they, if they finish sixth this year, I think, oh, that's not too bad. And I think, you know, I hate, hate to call Gary Neville here, but in inverted commas, this is Manchester United. Like, we shouldn't be impressed by United finishing sixth in the Premier mm. League and be like, well, that's a mark of progress because it isn't. It's a mark of a billion pounds spent very badly over a period of time. And that those four out of five wins, Brentford at home scored twice in stoppage time and then beat Sheffield United, Fulham and Luton by the old goal. So it's not blowing you away, is it? No, it's not. It's not. Well, that's where we'll leave things in the Premier League for this international break, uh, an international break that we'll be previewing in Thursday's show. Are you looking forward to it? Who have England got? North Macedonia away and Malta at home. So, Mm. jury's out. Okay. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll be a little... Important to pick a strong squad for Gareth Southgate for that. (laughs) The interesting thing will be how which players are still in that squad in five days' time, quite frankly, because there's going to be so many withdrawals through injuries and concerns about injuries that... Who's who's earned themselves a call-up in James Madison's place today out of Cole Palmer and Raheem Sterling? Probably neither. Jesse Lingard. (laughs) Jesse Lingard. Uh, Well, we'll have more news on that. In Thursday's show. Before that, as mentioned, the Tuesday show will be rounding up all the latest excitement around Europe. So do join us for that. For now, many, many thanks to James, to Daniel, to Matt, and special guest producer Ben. And to you, listener, have a great week. And we'll be back with Team Totally soon. You've been listening to The Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. Discover bonus video content by searching for The Totally Football Show on YouTube and see the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Athletic.